Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon. Thank you for being here. On behalf of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and our chairman and vice chairman and president, we really appreciate you taking the time and effort to be here today. We are privileged to have Ambassador Frank Wisner with us today, who uh, his name alone stands above so many folks who have served our country across the globe. Ambassador Wisner has served as our ambassador to Zambia, to the Philippines, to Egypt, to India, and has represented our country and worked with eight presidents of the United States through his very distinguished career. I know for a fact that Ambassador Wisner has been a part of very delicate negotiations and discussions, bringing together global leaders and our country to a bilateral and a closer relationship to achieve mutual objectives. I have been honored to know Ambassador Wisner and some members of his family for many years, and we thank you so much, sir, for all that you do for our country. You are a hero in my book. And on that note, please welcome Ambassador Wisner. Marjorie, uh, <clears throat> you embarrass me. I am frank to admit, thank you so much. That was a really lovely introduction. Uh, Mr. Powers, I'm most pleased to be a member of your gathering today, to be with Pat Patterson as well, who I've known for many years. And Mr. Falk, a treat you, sir, to be a friend of yours and to be back in touch again as you continue your presidency of the World Affairs Council. I was particularly excited when Michelle Suarez of our law firm, Patton Boggs, all of you know, uh, asked me if I would come and be part of this forum, and somewhat intimidated, I have been but inside the walls of the World Affairs Council in the past. I came here in the late 1980s in the entourage <clears throat> of Hosni Mubarak, then president of Egypt, uh, when he came to visit Dallas at the instigation of Bob Strauss and your great mayor of the day. And I was with the president uh, when he spoke to the World Affairs Council. And I remember the work that I understood you were doing then, greatly expanded today. So let me congratulate you, wish all of you very well, as a World Affairs Council, you're doing the most important job at this time in our nation's history when the United States is redefining important international objectives, looking at our own national strength, our economy at home, and our position abroad. And there simply are not enough fora in this country, not enough ways to reach young people studying in our schools to 
explain the choices. So coming together, as you all do, matters a great deal. And so let me, Marjorie, thank you for the nice things you said about me, but most of all, let me wish all of you well. I'm also very pleased to be representing today my law firm, Patent Boggs, which has perhaps a special franchise in the sense that we live and work out of Washington heavily, but do we have a strong team in Dallas in our corporate finance operations? Many of you know us, have worked with us, but our real strength is our ability to communicate thoughts, ideas on Capitol Hill within the administration and our regulatory bodies, and then to represent governments around the world, which is one of the reasons I, of course, am associated with it. So, Michelle, thank you for being my hostess here as a member of the firm. Um, I've come today to talk to you and think for a few minutes about the Arab awakening. Uh, and I do so, and using those words rather than Arab Spring for reasons that I will make clear, um, I do so because it's a, almost a magical time. It's virtually a year to these days that the events in Tahrir Square in Egypt broke out. It's a couple of days beyond that than the first incident that brought about this current revolutionary stage in Arab life occurred in Tunisia. And this, of course, was all the harbingers of the future developments that took place in, in uh, Libya, in Yemen, and, of course, uh, the events that are unfolding before our eyes in Syria. Uh, it's been a year. It's been a year. And now, as this first year ends, an equally extraordinary event is just beginning to take place, and that is the emergence in governments across the region of Islamic-based political parties, politically inspired Islamic political parties, now representing the Prime Minister of Morocco, the government of Tunisia, having won three elections shortly, the dominant force in the political equation in Egypt, in Libya, in Yemen, uh, at the heart of the Syrian opposition, Islamist politics, which we have been far from, is beginning to move forward. So we are looking at a time in which the most basic assumptions about American policy and our posture in the Middle East is either challenged or in question, and we are perforce required to sit down and think again about who we are, what we're doing, who we're going to work with, and where we're headed. The starting point, I would suggest for all of you, as you begin to think about this extraordinary passage of events with great consequences for the United States, is the fact that we are really witnessing a continuum that started many years ago. It's come really in three phases. A continuum of Arab peoples running from Baghdad through, through Rabat, through Morocco to the Atlantic Ocean, of a great nation, a great civilization that has been struggling after 400 years of being under someone else's rule to produce modern, progressive, just, economically successful societies and at the same time 
continue to be true to the great historical, religious, and cultural traditions of the Arab world. The Arab awakening began in the 1920s when Arab nations broke loose from the Turkish ex-Ottoman Empire and were established as the Arab states that we largely know today. The language, the culture came back. But there was a fatal flaw in that first cycle of the awakening, and that was it was defined by foreigners, British and French, notably their very heavy hands set the political stage throughout the Arab world and produced an enormous backlash. took World War II to break the grip of the colonial powers on the Middle East, but once broken in the face of mob action and army rebellions throughout much of the region in the early 1950s. I'm old enough to remember Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt. I remember the Assads and the Ba'ath Party arising both in Iraq and in Syria, the <clears throat> Gaddafi takeover in Libya, the arrival of army politics, high degree of high-pitched Arab nationalism, and at the same time the beginning of national security states that have dominated the culture of the region, whether they were actually army officers in control or kings with a monarch monarchical crown on top of a national security state. States with a very important definition, and that was the army, the secret police, the control mechanisms were in place. Democracy was sidelined. State ownership of the means of production, a modicum of rather poor education, jobs that paid an inadequate return. And as the years went on, the repression, as opposed to the exuberance, became more and more a fact of the day, leading to what is today the third phase. And that is this period of awakening, where many, many Arabs are coming out to express themselves in a manner that will continue not one, two, three, four, but ten years or longer as they adjust their societies, not only their governments, but even inside the societies, in the relationships inside of families. Things are changing. And where they're going to be changing, we're seeing now just a raising of the curtain on the Islamist entry. It shouldn't really surprise us that the Islamists are moving onto front stage. They, after all, have been very much part of the Arab reality for many years, though underground. They were the codifiers of the resistance. They organized effective social mechanisms at the time of family or uh, societal crisis. They had a very attractive narrative for, in their language, they could relate the current predicament of Arabs to their great tradition using the languages of religion. But now they're up against a challenge. They are taking responsibility for the affairs of much of the region and simply mouthing the slogan that Islam is the solution is not the way to guarantee effective governance. And so, as we begin this latest phase, with the Islamists coming to the fore, a phase that we must accommodate to ourselves, 
Many uncertainties lie ahead. But one thing we know is there are going to be changes. And where will we end up at the end of the day? I can't begin to tell you. Will these, this Arab awakening, this latest phase, be more or less democratic, more or less tolerant in religious terms, more or less open in economic terms, more or less chaotic or ordered in societal terms, hard yet to say. We're on an adventure that has a very long ways to go. But one thing we can all be certain of, the Arab world could not have taken its place in the normal flow of human civilization, shackled as it was until the eve, until this time in its life came about. I'm going to take a few minutes with you today, if you'll bear with me. I can't talk about all of the Arab world and where it's going. It's more than just the generalizations that matter. In fact, matters less than what will happen in each of the Arab countries. I'm going to take three whose influence is such, the events within which are such that they will affect the whole, and therefore our vision of the region will affect the way we relate to the Arab world. The first country I want to talk about is Egypt, and I do so because, obviously, it's the largest. Ninety million people, an ancient land whose history and culture has marked Arabism from its very first days, lies at the heart of the intellectual traditions of Sunni Islam and has been a central pillar of American policy in the region since the early 1970s when Sadat took Egypt out of the Soviet shadow and moved explicitly into a relationship with us and peace with the state of Israel. The conditions that produced the revolution in Egypt, you know well. <clears throat> Mubarak was virtually a, virtually a symbol of what was wrong throughout the national security system. He was an older man, a man who physically hearing impaired, but he was politically hearing impaired in terms of his openness to ideas and his listening to the people of his country. Around him, there was growing economic inequality and a lot of corruption at the top. The police system in Egypt, while by no means comparable to totalitarian system, was rough-headed, rough-edged, very difficult. But the thing that really did in Mubarak was the 2010 elections, which were blatantly rigged, and in which Mubarak hoped to set the stage by having a controlled parliament to cause his re-election as president, even though he was 82, and his presidency would have gone on throughout much <clears throat> of the balance of his life. Mubarak didn't listen, and therefore he is paying the most awful of prices, humiliation. But the year that's followed, the year that's followed in Egypt has been tumultuous, disorder, declining economic conditions, and a real contest between three major actors. There were those who entered Tahrir Square, people, young people, people with a lot of enthusiasm, 
a lot of resentment for the political and economic humiliation they'd felt, who were heavily secular in their points of view, their ability to use blogs and tweets is well known to all of us. They look very much like the information revolution come alive in current politics. They were rapidly, however, moved aside and found no serious political expression. In fact, some 40 parties developed to represent, and therefore it is not surprising they made a very weak showing in the current round of elections in Egypt. They were barely organized outside of Cairo, and it's going to take years for that side of the Egyptian political equation to come together. Then there was the army. The army arriving in power with a lot of authority, a lot of national support, large, strong army. But you know, you'd have to remember neither Sadat nor Nasser before him nor Mubarak after him was ever going to pick the brightest guys to run the army and threaten their position. And if you look at the record of the Egyptian army over the last year, you've seen serial mistakes in the way they've managed the country and a loss, a loss of prestige. While the army will continue to be a decisive factor, it has slipped in prestige and in influence, and it is ceding now principal political ground to the Muslim brothers, the Salafis, the Islamist trend, which has taken approximately 70% of the votes and the seats in the forthcoming uh, <clears throat> assembly, parliament, and therefore a dominant hand in the writing of the new Egyptian constitution and the formation of an Egyptian government. It is that reality that we, with our great stake in Egypt, are going to have to adapt to. And what does it mean? We're going to have to adapt to people who are very skillful politically, who have a good social organization, who have an excellent command of the language, but have no experience in government. They have never been responsible since their founding in 1928, have never been responsible for the governance of any Arab land, much less a big, complicated country like Egypt. And they're really up against great big problems, the biggest being the economy. The Egyptian economy ended 2010 with people actually talking about Egypt being a potential member of the BRIC club. By the end of 2011, anything but. Foreign exchange reserves taking flight at roughly a billion dollars a month. The budget in chaos, inflation rising. Balance of payments imperiled. Employment, youth unemployment at 25%, declining production productivity throughout the economy, a collapse of the tourist industry, worker remittances from abroad, given the events in Libya notably and <clears throat> elsewhere, meant that Egypt is really on very hard times. It's on a serious low. And with that much economic unhappiness, the Muslim Brothers who will shape the next government, are going to have their hands full. So I predict that they will bring others into government. They'll ask others to share the pain and burden 
in this first cycle. They'll bring in some technocrats and secular political figures to help share the help share the help share the responsibility. But they will be up against major challenges. They've got to establish some confidence they know what they're doing domestically among Egyptians and internationally for no government of Egypt can survive on its own. It needs a deal with the world. That means we all have to be comfortable. We know who we're dealing with. They're going to have to manage as well other tendencies in the Islamic spectrum Islamic field, the Salafis, are more radical in social terms. They're going to have to make it clear that they are able to rule and rule responsibly. And then in a year's time, literally only one year, they're going to have to face the electorate again and be able to stand on their own record and prove what they're doing. One thing I feel comfortable about is that whether they are Islamists or any other emerging political force. No Arab population is going to allow the repetition of repression of one time, one vote, and that's it. So the Islamists are going to have a run for their money, and it's going to be tough. And they're going to have a tough time, particularly in Egypt. Let me turn then to Syria, a game still to be played out in a different manner, I raise Syria with you, mention it, because not because Syria is a large country, it isn't, only 25 million people, uh, not a great country in terms of resources, it has some modest holdings of oil, but Syria is important to the way you think about the Middle East because Syria has always been at the crossroads of Arab history. Every major movement in the region has flown through Syria. Every historical event has had an event taking place in Syria. And on top of Syria's pivotal position in the region, she also is geographically central, touching as she does on Turkey, Israel, Lebanon, Iraq, Jordan. What happens inside her borders affects all the neighborhood. One of the reasons that for quite a while the neighbors have been quiet. But then you have the other decisive fact of Syria, and that is the extraordinary skill of the Assad family. Hafez al-Assad, father, Bashar al-Assad, son, Mahar al-Assad, the division commander, the second armored division, the clan of Alawites who have run Syria now for three plus going four decades. Very clever people manipulators par excellence. If you look at the history of the modern Middle East, this regime has played the fascinating role of being both arsonist and firefighter simultaneously. Manipulator par excellence. Today, the game has changed. And Syrians, probably as early as last summer, began to lose their fear Citizens of Homs and Hama of Daraa are all in a state now of virtually permanent rebellion, unintimidated by power, willing to die and show their resistance to the regime. I frankly do not see how the game can be reversed. 
I'm not sure where it's headed, but be reversed, it isn't. For among the other problems that Syria faces, the Syrian regime faces, is that instead of being in a position to manipulate the affairs of others and back and split the Palestinians and back and split the Lebanese, instead of being able to do that now, everyone is playing inside of Syria. The Turks are playing. The Lebanese are free from the Syrian hand. The Iranians are active. The Saudis are active. All are picking and choosing their favorites in the Syrian on the Syrian stage. And so we head to the future with, I'm afraid to say, great uncertainty. It seems to me inconceivable that the present regime can survive, tough as it is and determined as it is to preserve its position and its privileges and take advantage of the religious and ethnic divisions inside the country. Instead, there are two ways ahead a hopeful way, and that is at some point in the months ahead, the Syrian army and others decide it's time's up, a compromise is found, some election, some way to move the Assads out of the way, and a transition to a more stable political order. Or, alternatively, and every day it looks darker, you head towards civil war. And civil war in Syria, we know what that looks like, for we have just seen it in Iraq. We saw it not so many years ago in Lebanon. It's bloody, protracted, and it's enormously dangerous for everyone. So where we are today is very important, trying to contain and encourage, contain problems and encourage change, the same problem the Turks and others face. The third country that will be decisive, its example and its actions will be impactful on the rest of the region is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia not because the Saudis are about to fall apart. They certainly are not. The regime is well entrenched, deeply seen in the eyes of its people as legitimate. The king has been uncommonly wise in addition to his charisma. They have vast resources, plan to spend about $130 billion on improving conditions inside the country, which is obviously a strong suit of theirs. Tough, very strong security forces, able to manage things. Syria, Saudis are not in any way threatened. In time, in time, they face real challenges. Twofold, the dynastic change from the current family that is ruled Saudi Arabia, the first line of succession of old King Abdulaziz bin Saud to the next generation. The rules of that transition are not clear and within them contain some tension, but not for today or for tomorrow, even and despite the great age of the monarch and his successors. The second problem in the longer run they face is money. Seems impossible, but frankly, think about it, the decision to insist that the new oil price is $100 a barrel. You better be sure you can keep the world economy demanding at that level if you set your spending $100 a barrel and you can't keep the price there, you'll run into other problems. But 
What we're really talking about with Saudi Arabia is no internal problem, but rather how the Saudis will play their not inconsiderable cards in sorting out the affairs of the region. And they will be consequential. In the first instance, their objectives are to maintain stability at home. Second, to make certain that the Gulf neighborhood is calm. And they're going to be rough. They were rough about Bahrain. They are capable of being rough again. They will then, from there, move out, not so much to stop change, but to try to make certain that change is orderly. They have no great stake in Islamic politics, despite the Wahhabi nature of the Saudi regime. They do have a stake in stability and order, and the Saudis will be a force for gradual change. They will help bankroll the king of Morocco, the king of Jordan, where the evolution can take place in a more measured manner. Under the right circumstances, they will help the Egyptians, but only if they're convinced that the Egyptians are on a road towards stability. We need the Saudis. And for the first time in our lives, the Saudis are making it clear they don't wait for a call from Washington. They will take action. They're angry at us for not backing Mubarak. They're angry at us for leaving Iraq in the hands of the Shia. But fundamentally, they need us. They know it. But they're going to be assertive. So they are a huge and influential force that all of us need to watch. Those are three cases. But what about us? What about the United States? For this represents, these events, this moment in the awakening, represents a huge challenge to us as Americans. We have got to sit down and rethink our engagement, what it's about, and recalculate our assets and our liabilities. The United States has as if we are honest with ourselves, significant problems as we head into this period in our lives. Those problems start with a profound shift in the region's balance of power that has been underway now for some years. The Iranians were first to identify their ability to build a chain from Tehran to Baghdad to Damascus to Hezbollah land in southern Lebanon and moved to a position where Iran could defend herself by squeezing our interests and threatening Israel and putting pressure on Arab parties in a manner that the Iranians had never been able to do before. Seeing that we couldn't stop that, the Turks began to move away from us and assert their own personality in the region and hop over the Iranian iron link chain. Until Damascus began to fall apart, the Turks have now moved to break through and start to rebalance and frustrate the Iranians. The Saudis are trying to do exactly the same thing. The Middle East is moving into a position that we haven't known in the years of privilege the United States had after the expulsion of the Soviet Union at the time of the 1973 war. We are now looking at different actors all in play. And we are part of a balance of power, not as a dictator of the outcome.
That reality is yet to fully sink in our minds as a nation, that we are part of a coalition, not the maker of, of the region's identity. That's the first limitation, the relative decline of American power. But there are other limitations we operate under, other liabilities, if you will. Our economy is hardly strong enough to permit robust interventions in the region. And our allies, well, look what's going on in Europe today. But we are carrying, in addition to these problems, more immediate ones. Our image is badly battered by our unwillingness to use with resolve and determination American influence to build bridges between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And all Arabs boil at what they perceive as injustice. It's not there against making peace with Israel. They've shown formula for doing that. But to have no compensating set of gestures and no American activism has severely undermined our credibility in the region. And then are our wars. Uh, our intervention in Iraq, in Afghanistan, has gone down very badly in a region deeply sensitive to signals of foreign occupation. Of course, we also supported some of the old regimes, and that's remembered as well. But before I paint too gloomy a picture as you do your estimates, let's remember we have some assets. We're certainly not in the knacker's yard yet. We're not off to the glue factory. We have much to deal with when we look at the region. What are we? First and foremost, in the minds of most Arab governments in the region, we are the essential component in the balance of power. Without us, the Saudis cannot face Iran. Without us, the balances between Israel and the region are harder to manage, maintain, and understand. We are key to the balance in the region. We are also vitally important one day again, I hope soon, as a peace broker. No one can deal with the Palestinians and the Israelis like the United States can. There is no other alternative, and they know they can't deal one with the other. We have as well the huge economic catalytic capability, not the check which we can't write, but we are the country that's able to bring around the table the World Bank, the IMF, other donors, the Saudis, the Gulf states, to help nations like Egypt as they try to weather this current storm. Only the United States has that capability. And finally, and look at your universities in this state and elsewhere around, the, around this country, the power of American culture remains very vibrant. Amer Arab students in our universities Arabs who own property, Arabs who have family in this country, we are an attractive beacon for much of the Arab world. So what are we going to do with these liabilities and these assets? I recommend several thoughts for all of you to entertain and take home. But the starting thought is, let's remember, we have to be careful. We have to listen. We're going to have to proceed with great caution. There aren't going to be any made-in-Washington solutions. I start 
by remembering John Quincy Adams's extraordinary expression of what ought to be the fundamental premise of American foreign policy that he uttered on the 4th of July in 1821 when he said, America stands as the well-wisher for the freedom and independence of all, but should only be the champion or vindicator of its own. In short, we can be the friend of the family in helping bring about the arrival of democracy, but we cannot impose it, provoke it, stimulate it. This is an Arab show that's going to be run by Arabs for Arabs. We can play on the margins and be a friend, but we cannot take its place. Therefore, we need to be very careful. We need not to intervene militarily. Only under extraordinary circumstances should that be in mind. Today's call for American military intervention in Syria is, to my way of thinking, utter folly. The American intervention in Libya came about with a unique set of requests from both our European allies and the Arab League. You won't replicate that. We shouldn't have tried to do it. Second, we've got to start speaking to the Islamists. We have no fundamental quarrel with them as long as they respect the rules of democracy and the alternance of power and that they are prepared to preserve the peace, notably with Israel. Um, we, can, we didn't choose them as our first line of friends, but there is no reason we can't offer an open door and a cordial reception to the many members of the Islamist trend who are currently making their ways to Washington. I was delighted when Deputy Secretary Burns met day before yesterday in Cairo with the head of the Muslim Brothers. Very important signal of our intention to adjust ourselves and deal with the new realities. But if we're going to deal with the new, we've also got to maintain strong ties to the old. The Saudis may be put off by us and disappointed, but they are critical. Their influence is critical to what goes on ahead. And they need us particularly to deal with Iran. So we're going to have to be involved. We're going to have to be patient. There are going to be ups and downs. There are going to be inconsistencies. It would be, it would be wonderful if we could sweep away the problems of Bahrain, but we cannot. We're going to have to live with the awkward reality that the Shia population is subjected to much greater pressure from its own Sunni rulers backed by the Saudis. Not much we can do about that. Modest in our ambitions. We're going to have to also recognize their ways we have to mobilize to be of help to the region. I believe in the catalytic economic capacity of the United States. As I said, no Tunisian or Egyptian government today can make its way forward without external assistance, and there's only one nation that can rally that assistance with any effectiveness. That's the United States. We are also challenged to be peacemaker. We are challenged to be peacemaker, notably between the Arabs and the Palestinians, not because of the Palestinians and the Israelis, 
not because of their interests, but because of ours, that our image, our reputation, our standing depends on our ability to grab the peacemaking challenge and bring Bibi Netanyahu, Mahmoud Abbas, and the others back to the table, Hamas, back to the table again. A big order, lots of things to do, but it is a doable challenge. It's certainly a challenge in a time that's new, in which we need to rethink where we're going. But sometimes I look at what's going on in the Middle East, my mind goes back to the spring of my graduating year at Princeton, when I saw across the table from me my very dear and old friend, a young Moroccan, who had studied at Princeton, gotten his MA, and had gone, was heading back to Morocco. And I said, Mohammed, in the spring of 1961, where do you want to see your country in the course of your lifetime? He said, I want to be, we want to be, we Arabs like you. We want to put a man on the moon in our generation. About five years ago, I was in Rabat, and he and I dined. He'd gone on with a remarkable career, been dean of the political science department at the University of Rabat. He'd been in the central committee of the Moroccan Socialist Party, had been deputy mayor of Rabat. I said, Mohammed, how do you look at your life? He said, failure. Failure. We've accomplished nothing. The dead hand of government has stifled expression, and our great history has given us no opportunity to contribute to the flow of civilization. And I look today at Mohammed across those oceans, and I think about what he said to me, and I wonder today if the Arab world ever would have broken loose if it had not broken its chains. It has, it's got a chance, and it can have a friend in us as long as we're wise about it and stay involved. Ladies and gentlemen, said my piece, and I'd be happy if I could answer some questions. said we do have a tradition for the first question to be from a student and uh, the question is after the revolution in Egypt the current military rule and civilian protest how should the United States engage with the military and, and why don't we go a bit farther and ask about the role of US foreign assistance right uh, it's a very important question we have deep ties to the Egyptian military for a whole generation Egyptian officers have attended our schools Egyptian military is equipped with American equipment. We uh, have personal ties. We have doctrinal linkages, very close ties. We want to maintain those. But at the same time, we have to be respectful. The Egyptian military is going through the most complicated transition, and they're not sure at all what's going to happen. They are trying to manage this very volatile and fractious situation. And I think the last thing they need are as many political science lectures as they're getting from Washington. They certainly don't mind getting advice. As long as that advice is respectful and quiet. But to have to play our own domestic compulsions out by lecturing them in public is to me a very bad and immodest way to go about dealing with another party. 
Now, we don't want the Egyptian military to bully the scene in Egypt. But don't worry, they're not going to be able to. They recognize the numbers just like we do. 70% of the vote in an Egyptian election transfers moral and political authority to new political actors. I would not be surprised that in addition to having to turn over power, they're going to have to turn over their leadership. They're going to have to come up with military officers who can get along with a new Islamic definition. This is going to be challenging and wrenching and important for us how they come out, but very challenging. At the same time, the military is going to want to maintain its economic position. It owns 20% of the GDP of Egypt, and its stake in the budget, which is very large, and it's going to want, in a very positive way, to protect Egypt's ability to keep the peace. The military certainly doesn't want a war with Israel. Happily, the current expressions of intention on behalf of the Islamic leaders is that they too want to pursue peace. They also are people who come out of a business tradition. Many in the Egyptian business community think they can do deals with these guys. But what will the military do? All of this is a very tough time. And when somebody else is in trouble, you don't stick your finger in their eye. We need to be very careful how we deal with the military. We want them to be the midwife to democracy. We don't want them to be mother and father. They won't do it. They won't do a good job at it. But they need to help steer things. And that's where we should be nudging them. Thank you. Pat, I believe you had a question. that throws off a great deal of rhetoric, and then you've got the politics internally in Iran. Could you talk about that, please? Well, I'm, I'm glad to do it, and I'm, Pat, I believe it, it could not be a more important question. I, I'm frank to say to all of you today um, that I am deeply, deeply, deeply worried about the situation we, the Iranians, the Israelis face that could, without much prompting, get out of hand and put us back in a war in the region just at a time when we don't need a war and we're getting out of those that we've been involved in. This is a very ugly moment. On the one hand, the Israelis have identified the Iranian nuclear development as something profoundly destabilizing for Israel. Not so much a bomb, the Iranians are some years from getting a bomb, but the impact of even the capability to have a bomb could change the balance in the region and make Israel less defensible and less able to steer the region, manage the, itself in the region's politics. Israelis have got themselves wound up on this issue, wound up tight as a spring, and many argue Bibi sees, Bibi Netanyahu sees a sort of role for himself as the great defender, that even if they can attack the Iranian nuclear facility without our support, even 
our agreement. They can set it back three years and attack again and disrupt and maintain this kind of stern security presence. Well, let me tell you, if they do, we'll be blamed. I don't care what role we play, but we have we played a big role. We provide the big bombs, the bunker busters. We provide the long-range fueling capability. You can't give a man the tools and then when he uses them say, you didn't have anything to do with it. We will catch hell. How much is a bit of a question uh, because people like the Saudis are unlikely to both attack us and be not entirely displeased. We've seen that the Iranians have had a bump on their head. But I think on balance, it will be very bad for the United States, not to mention the Iranian reaction against our soldiers in Afghanistan, against the Straits of Hormuz and the flow of international hydrocarbons, the threats to which are all too obvious, though it cuts both ways for the Iranians if they react. So this is a very ugly, ugly period, and I could not be more worried about it. My great concern on our side is that we be very clear we do not want violence, and that the institution of violence will engender on our side a harsh and remembered action. Hard to do when most of the candidates running for the presidency on the Republican side of the House have declared themselves in favor of various campaigns against Iran. Uh, And that uh, Romney, who has the most articulated campaign position on the Middle East, says what Israel wants, Israel should be supported by the United States, including moving the capital from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, something no president in the United States has ever committed himself to. Our leverage with the Israelis is undercut by our own internal politics, frankly. Now, everybody has right to his own opinion. I just don't happen to agree that that's the way our interests should be pursued. But I'm also concerned that while we have built up a great deal of pressure on Iran to come to terms on the nuclear front, have piled sanction on top of sanction, we've yet to define what we want that pressure to accomplish. How do we intend to sit down with the Iranians and negotiate a future in which they back down from the high mountain peak thereon to something that we would advance to, and you find some middle ground. After all, Iran is an NPT power. It is a declared non-intentional nuclear arms producer, though the line between capability and arms is a rather fine one. So I think there's a lot of thinking. But today, to suggest in our political environment that our objective should be to seek some negotiation with the Iranians, I think that would be a sure way for political suicide. So it's very difficult in our domestic environment to practice diplomacy, and yet we need a real dollop of it if we're going to make sense of our engagement with Iran. Other questions? Yes, sir. If you'll wait for the microphone, please. You haven't mentioned China 
China continues to get more and more of their hydrocarbons from both Iran and Saudi Arabia as we buy less and less from Saudi Arabia and become more energy independent here. Um, if I read in the papers, I see that China seems to be uh, going against us in a lot of our efforts with trying to uh, with Iran and other places. Is there any is there any capability on the part of the United States to try to work with China to to cool things off in the Middle East? Well, uh, there are several ways of thinking about your question, which is truly at the heart of the greatest challenge to American foreign policy today. How do we how do we live and deal with China? For China is shortly to become the largest economy in the world, virtually on the eve of being the largest trading partner in the world, massive consumer of international resources. Um, China is now the fact in Asia. We are a, a parallel fact, but by no means at the center of the stage, which is where I've known us to be in the Pacific all of my life. Asia is now a China-centric system. The supply chains of Asia fly, flow to and from China. China is the consumer of the most of the capital goods that Japan, Korea produce, the minerals Canada, Australia produce, Indonesia, China, China, China. You've got to deal with China. When you think about Asia particularly, in the Middle East... China is not an energetic player. China is a resource player, and it has two motivations. One, historically, it is neuralgic about foreign intervention in other people's affairs. That was the great agony of 200 years of modern Chinese history, and they are literally neuralgic. When the Security Council comes up with fresh ways to punish a country for its behavior. China thinks of her own experience. And unless it is really extraordinary, almost, almost reflexively, China will oppose it. That's a fact. We're not going to change that fact easily. What you can get China to do is to stand aside a bit. The second problem we face is China's real need for resources. For given the structure of Chinese politics, if you don't produce growth in China, the legitimacy of the communist-centric system collapses. To get growth, you've got to have resources. Those resources have to flow through sea lanes like the South China Sea, which puts it in a pivotal position in the world. So, China is resource-sensitive. Now, put those two together, it's going to be very difficult to persuade China to do what we think is in our interests in the Middle East. Russians are there for other reasons. Chinese and Russian behavior bolsters the Syrian regime, bolsters a bit the Iranians, though the Russians have parted company over Iran and have taken more consensual international positions. So I think you can explain to the Chinese, remind them that emergence is the largest economy in the world, means a responsibility for global governance.
but don't count on a rapid turnaround for China's China's thinking about her posture is very deep and very rooted both in reality and in history. We have time for one more question, and I think I'll take it to follow up a little bit with Pat Patterson's. From your perspective, tell us about could the Strait of Hormoz be closed? For how long could the Gulf nations step in and reopen it to Iran, and what would be the impact on the oil markets? Um, look, I, uh, the, the very thought of it just freezes me. I'm, I'm truly horrified. Um, the Iranians could close the Straits of Hormuz for some period of time. Uh, shore-based uh, attacks, be missile or artillery. It's a narrow, narrow point. Certainly there is no regional capability to stop them from that. We have a lot of force present. But you can't just use the force to open the straits. You're going to have to deal with what's bringing it to you. You're going to end up at war with Iran. You're going to end up having to attack more and more deeply into Iranian territory, at least with air and other types of power. And do the Iranians take that passively? Or do they cause other disruptions, for example, to our exposed troop concentrations in Afghanistan? How long does this play out? Is it really necessary? Are we really fated to go to war with Iran? I'd hate to think we are. I don't think we are. I don't think we've exhausted the means, political and diplomatic, to come to terms. Not that we are going to like the Iranians. I don't like them. You don't either. But they are a regime. And, you know, you live with people you don't like. Um, You learn to cope with it. We did with the Soviet Union. If we could do it with the Soviet Union... I've never understood why we can't find some modus vivendi with the Iranians, but you've got to work at it, and you've got to get your politics out of the way, and the latter may be the hardest of all jobs. Thank you, Thank Ambassador Wisner. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.